Hello. The winner is. Oh, well, sorry, I didn't win it, Mr. Lemley. I know no one else I'd rather have beat me than you. I am the most frantically sought person in cinema land. I, Oscar, the Academy Award. Hello! Ho, ho, ho! And welcome back to The Snub Club, a podcast where we talk about the movie with the most Oscar noms, but no wins. I am your host, Danny Vincent, and I have two other hosts that I'm not going to do the Santa laugh on again. <laughs> the bit will get very old if I keep doing it, which hasn't stopped me before, but it will now. <laughs> Who are these hosts? Well, I'm Sarah Kanoff. I don't have any holiday-related puns to make at this said time. Just Santa Kanoff. But that's not my name. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to do one, but now like even I think of them as Sarah says it. So now I don't know. I I'm Caleb. I, I'm I'm the elf who's late no for elf name. practice. I'm Caleb Bunn. All right. Um in case you can't tell, this is our holiday episode coming at you live on December twenty fifth. Not live, but coming to you December twenty fifth. Uh if you're listening to this after December 25th, that's fine too. Uh, no, it we're isn't. Gonna... Stop. Turn it Can't off. Do that. What? <laughs> Unsubscribe. What? Okay, whatever. Anyway, so this is where we will nor- we would normally do our countdown. We'll reveal what we're doing, but it's the holiday episode, which means we're covering a Christmas movie this time. I don't know if this will happen again. I do know we have at least two more Christmas movies that will eventually qualify for this podcast. Along with several that we could put under Easter because they're about Jesus. Uh, so we'll see about those when we get to them. Uh, but for now, we are jumping ahead a lot to the 19th Academy Awards, which took place in 1947 and honored the films of 1946 to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, uh, which had five nominations and no competitive wins. Just probably what we should start with before we break down the nominations that it had. Um, this film was nominated for five Oscars, as we've said, and it did eventually win an Oscar. I actually believe it won the Oscar at the following ceremony, if I remember right when I read that, uh, because it got a Technical Achievement Award for, let me read it exactly, Russell Shearman and the RKO Radio Studio Special Effects Department, because they invented a new method to simulate falling snow on a uh, movie set. So technically, this, no pun intended, this did win an Oscar. But since it did not win a competitive Oscar, we are covering it. And then eventually, when we hit uh, this year again, we will cover the next film that qualifies for, which also won a special Oscar. And then we will cover the one that only did won absolutely nothing. So, but for now, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful line. So, Sarah, tell us... Yeah. Uh, Tell us what it was. The wiki is very convenient for you to. Uh... I know. I, I noticed that. <laughs> right. So um, it was nominated for um, Best Picture and lost to the best years of our lives. Uh, best Director for Frank Capra, who lost to our old pal William Wyler for the best years of our life. Um, of course, Capra was also nominated for Lady for a Day and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. 
Um, and he won for You Can't Take It With You, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and It Happened One Night. Um, best Actor for James Stewart, uh, who lost to Frederick March in The Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, Jimmy Frederick Stewart. Frederick March, old friend of the podcast. Yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy Stewart was nominated three more times, and he won for The Philadelphia Story, as well as a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, best Editing for William Hornbeck, who lost to Daniel, Daniel Mandel for the best years of our lives. Uh, Hornbeck won for A Place in the Sun and was nominated two more times. Uh, And best sound recording for John Alberg, who lost to John P. uh, Lividary for the Jolson story. Um, Alberg was nominated eight more times and he won three out of competition awards. Nice. And um, Caleb, do you have any historic context for this? Besides, of course, us jumping ahead so many years to a... Uh, I will... Yeah. yeah, I will save the bulk of my historical context for when we come back to this year. Um, what I will touch on is just kind of where Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra were in their careers. Obviously, this was after World War II, which they both served in. Frank, Frank Capra working to make propaganda films. And Jimmy Stewart, I'm not sure what he did, but he was a, he was a soldier. Um this was kind of a turning point in in uh, Stewart's career. Uh, he would, as he went into the fifties, he would start taking darker, more serious roles, especially in westerns, and he would move away from the more lighthearted uh, comedies that he kind of made his name for. And this is one of the films where you can kind of see that transition happen because it is still lighthearted, it is still ultimately wholesome, but it does have that darkness, especially in how Stewart plays it. Um, and then Frank Capra, out of coming out of the army, he he felt like he didn't really need the studio system anymore, and he kind of wanted to do other things. So he founded Liberty Films, which this film was released under. That uh, that production house only existed for five years, though, um, and he quickly quickly didn't work out for him, uh, which was unfortunate. But it was an early attempt at. The kind of stuff we would see in the late 60s and 70s uh, with with filmmakers striking out on their own. Yeah. All right. That's that's cool. So. Unlike. So, OK, so this is going to be a non-traditional episode. Cause one, it's a holiday special. But two, we are not going to recap scene by scene. It's a wonderful life because this is a movie that I think we consume either everyone has seen or everyone has intent to see at some point, if you know what I mean. If you're watching a movie from the 40s, this is probably in your top five like watch list, if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, so, there's no real point to us to break down that. So, I, I was thinking maybe we start with what we start on my other podcast with sometimes, and talk about, when did we first see this? Because this was a rewatch for all of us. Uh, I think that's kind of important if it's wonderful, because some people have watched this like since they were five. Or you can be like me, I'll just go first. I saw this first, like, I, I remember it was 2016 because my brother was not at home because he was seeing Moana. Uh, so that's how I know it was 2016. Uh, so it was just after the presidential election. Uh, not that that's really relevant to my experience with this movie, but I had it recorded on the TV and no one else was at home. And I just watched it and fast forwarded for the commercials. And I cried at the end, like one does when they watch this movie. Uh, and I remember thinking, like, you know, I waited so long to watch this. And it's really great. I can't wait to watch this again. And I, this was my first time watching it since then. Um, but yeah, 
that's how I first watched it. it was I think five years ago yeah five years ago for me um I don't really know when I first watched it I know I watched it when I was a kid and I watched it a few times since then in like bits and pieces because you know when you're like a kid like you watch movies but you don't really watch the full thing um and I I'm sure that I watched like a television edit as well which probably cut out some things um but yeah, I would say this is probably the first time that I've watched it like as an adult, um, which is not to say like when I was a teenager, when I watched it, like it did make me cry. Um, I do have a personal challenge with myself this episode to see <laughs> if I make it through without crying. We'll see. Um, but yeah, this is the I guess this is like the first time that I've watched it, you know, as an adult. Yeah. Similarly, not quite sure when I watched it first. This was on the rotation of four or five movies that my family watched every year around Christmas. It was like this and the original Miracle on 34th Street um, and Christmas Story and the lot. Um, but this this was always kind of, in my mind, the best one, even as a kid. And But it got to the point where, because I had seen it so much, I didn't really feel the need to seek it out that often. So this probably is the first time in several years I've watched it. Um, and there's definitely stuff that stuck out to me uh, that I hadn't noticed when I was younger, especially a lot of the stuff based around um, the economic politics of the movie. But yeah, I mean, still probably the greatest Christmas film. I think Yeah, it's hard uh, to yeah. argue, but yeah, uh, definitely. I would agree. Um, as someone who just rewatched the Muppet Christmas Carol, I was going to say that Even one's a contender. Muppet, that one's <laughs> yeah, really that, good, yeah. but this is there. Better. There are a couple. There are definitely a couple, and there are definitely more that are more Christmassy. But yeah, um, so I know you guys both watched this at home, right? Like, unless I didn't know if Kayla might have sought it out at the bell court. Uh, I saw it today it's coming up what? this week. <laughs> it's showing this week, so I kind of got you. Uh, I saw it today at the Music Box uh, Theater in Chicago, uh, and they had a sing-along in front of it, which was really cool. But what I want to talk about more was uh, my crowd was as rowdy as it was at Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, whenever <laughs> Mr. Potter came on, the audience just hissed. Uh, <laughs> when uh, when uh, Jimmy Stewart gives his big speech like at the shareholder meeting like after his father dies, the audience just applauded multiple times. And it was weird, too, because it was like, you know, at the end, where he goes like, here's the George, the richest man in town. Half the audience cheered. I think the other half was like me, that they were too busy crying to applaud. <laughs> like, <laughs> but it was just interesting to be in a crowd like that for this. Um, it's really because my brother, because I went with my bro- my younger brother who had never seen it. He's like, I didn't realize it'd be like the room. And I'm like, yeah, that was kind of weird. I don't know <laughs> if I like that or not. <laughs> I think it goes back to that thing you were saying, uh, Danny, is that this is such a familiar movie that almost everyone has seen or is seeking out. So I think I think it makes sense that the people would go into this and they're so emotionally bought into it already that uh, they would they would do things like boo Mr. <laughs> Potter. Yeah, and like it was a good experience, and like being in a dark theater is the best way to like really let it just you just sob your eye out, you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, so it's a wonderful life. Well, it's a wonderful can movie. I just can I just cut in? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think it's I think it's worth noting that this movie is actually in the public domain. So yeah. 
that's why like I would say 90% of people like the first time they watched it was probably on like like cable um because I just any channel can just play it so <laughs> I think that's and that's I mean we can talk about it maybe but just a little bit of context like that's kind of what that's kind of what like made it so popular is because it is in the public domain yeah much like wizard of oz it it didn't do terrible when it came out but was it a hit it obviously didn't do well enough to save liberty films um but then it was it was constantly being reshown that it's like a christmas story in that way um oh yeah it's much better than a christmas story um but i was also going to say with that is i i this is me doing conjecture i i am not the research guy but my brother asked me about it right and I was like, well, it bombed at initial release because I don't like, yeah, I don't consider this well. Like it made 6.3 million, which is it's a decent amount, but it's not a ton, you know, for what this was and the actors and the cast involved and the crew. Uh, so my interpretation of it is always that post-World War II, people were a little cynical because I don't really, does Capra have a big post-World War II movie? Because all the ones I know of are pre-World War II. Besides, mm-hmm. of course, this one, which is... This is uh, it, yeah. Yeah, which is... Uh, it's, you know, obviously it's... It's reputation comes post. It. Yeah, looking at his films after, I don't know. And Arsenic and Old Lace, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's more of a cult before. hit, though. Yeah, so, like... It makes sense to me, though, why... Because his movies are very much, you know... They make you feel good. They also yeah. make you feel really sad, but like in the, the nice warm way. So, well, originally this was going to be a lot more cynical when Cary Grant was attached. Um, oh, really? It was a, going to be about a politician, and um, <laughs> instead of instead of him wishing he was never born, it was like if he had gone into business instead and like how the town had changed. Um, and it was written by Trumbo actually. Oh, uh, interesting. But, uh, Cranston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, obviously Cary Grant, you know, exited the project. He ended up doing the preacher's wife, which is also kind of a Christmas classic. Um, and then it became more about, you know, a family man, um, and all that. And actually something that I read is also that, the FBI called this movie communist propaganda <laughs> because it I has mean... an anti-bank state like stance. Okay. <laughs> it's it's not. Like <laughs> to get into the economics of this movie, he does he does argue his positions from a market perspective. But I can definitely see coming out of World War II, entering into the Red Scare, I can see that because this is this film is so radically against the accumulation of wealth in a way that I feel like it's, it just has become more relevant as time's gone on. Yeah. There was one line in the movie. I can't even remember the exact line, but it's like how it's, he talks about how expensive it is to own a house. And I have and like my audience, you could hear just the oof, like with it. Cause it's like, yeah, you still can't really afford a house on the amount of money you get a year. So, uh, it's, Uh, it's just like there's so much in this that it both feels i think structurally it feels also just so ahead of its time that you know like you know about everyone knows the plot of this movie now it's just part of the cultural vernacular but 
what always surprised me both times I watched it is how I don't know if I've you time stamped it because I obviously didn't because I was in a movie theater. But when do we get to Christmas Eve in this movie? Because I feel like there's a solid 80 minutes of prelude to what we would consider the plot air quotes of this movie, even though obviously half the runtime being something else would mean that is not the plot of the movie. I think it is about halfway. I think his his past is like half of the movie. And I think like when I was going into it, I kind of like felt like it could have gone either way. Like for some reason I was thinking, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who feels this way, that it starts with him on the bridge and then it goes back and yeah. then we cut to, you know, he was never born. Um, but it doesn't do that. It just starts when he's a kid and just goes, you know, you know, yeah. straight in time. In a way, I feel like the Clarence stuff at the beginning has to be like they were testing the movie and everyone was just in shock at like random angels popping up <laughs> 90 minutes into the movie. <laughs> but like, I love the beginning of this movie because it does such interesting world building with the angels mm-hmm. where it's like, huh. So you have to, like, you can't see the past unless you have your wings. Okay, that's interesting. Like, they do a lot of stuff. Why is he reading Mark Twain? Like, there's just a lot of really weird stuff. Well, and that also, to me, kind of makes it be like, oh, I kind of get why this, like, bomb. People would be watching this after 20 minutes and spending, like, a nickel on it. Be like, nah, I'm not not spending my time with this anymore. (laughs) Like, um, but... I do agree. Like, I mean, it says on Wiki that it is loosely based. Okay, so the I didn't know. Spoiler alert! My plan going into this was to nominate this for original screenplay. So I was shocked in the opening credits when I saw based on a short story. So, uh, and I see on Wiki it says the short story was initially published and said to be based off a Christmas Carol, which seems evident. But I was surprised that it is yeah. actually like you know, coded to be that. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of why, like, the leap it takes in storytelling, because I'm trying to put myself back in the 1940s, the leap it takes in storytelling works because A Christmas Carol is still popular. That You're like, oh, okay, yeah. Like, my brother asked me, like, why is this really a Christmas movie other than, like, like it takes place on Christmas, but it's not really about Christmas. I'm like, well, it feels very, like, Christmas Carol-y. And I also think, like, part of the reason I cry so much at the end is that I think Auld Lang Syne is such, like, a sad song to me, yeah. too. <laughs> but, yeah. There's well, also, I remember there's this quote from Shane Black when he was asked why he said so many of his movies at Christmas. He says something along the lines of um, people do things at Christmas that they wouldn't normally do. And I think yeah. that's why this movie needs to be set at Christmas. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say is I feel like it's a Christmas movie in the sense of like George Bailey as a character is like, so. Oh no. <laughs> I'm going to cry. Um, <laughs> like George <laughs> Bailey is like so selfless. And so like, like, I mean, we see in his past and we see in his present and we see in his, you know, his future. Um, that like everything that he does, he does for other people, like even in, like at the very end. Um, and I think that that's a very Christmassy kind of attitude to have. Um, and it is kind of like a, a post ghost Scrooge kind of attitude to have as well. 
And I think it's kind of brilliant in the writing in a sense that he still is objective. Like he, the thing that gets me emotional about this movie before the ending is his breakdown, which uh, pretty much like, it's just hard to watch in so like in a good sense, you know, like, yeah. like in just uh like this feels like when I, like in the past, like I'm sure I don't know, just putting anything on you guys, but I know in the past that either I or members of my family have had similar meltdowns on Christmas because it's Christmas and it's just like, it's rough to watch just because it reminds you, at least for me, it reminds me of like my own failings that I've had in the past on Christmas, you know? Uh, but that's exactly why it's so good, though, because even if, as you're saying, George is selfish, he's still recognizably human. He's recognizably bitter at his brother mm-hmm. for, like, getting a better, like, he's a good person, but he doesn't necessarily want to be, if that makes sense. Well, he's, like, he's reached his limit. It's, like, this idea where you accumulate karma, and it's, like, when does it happen to me? Um, and I think that that's kind of the mentality that, that he has is like everybody, you know, I'm doing everything for everybody else. What, like what is going to happen to me? And I think that that's kind of where, I mean, and that's the whole point of the movie, right. Is like, you know, he does all this stuff for other people and he's like, you know, I, I'm useless. Like nobody cares about me. And -hmm. obviously that's not true because obviously he sets everything in motion. Um, Obviously, it's not like a material, you know, reward, but it does show him that his life, you know, is worth living um, and that he does have an impact on people. And it's it's made more powerful because, like, when we see him, like, help Martini move into his new house, that's cool. That's awesome. That's not when I feel like he's at his best, though. I feel like he's at his best when he was just about to make the selfish decision and he decides not to. And that's kind of his whole character is he's always about to make the wrong decision, but he always pulls back to the right one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to say, I think the martini is actually what I forgot about this movie the most. Like when that stuff popped up and I think about it, particularly in context to the other movies we've seen. Uh, and, you know, we always talk about like how, race or immigrants are treated in our movies that we're watching now because they're frequently not treated well uh and that to me is just so striking because then when we see nick nick's just you know like the guy whereas you know what i mean like he helped out this clearly foreign family that moved in to have a house for all their kids and stuff like that like he cares about everyone in the Mm -hmm. sense that i feel like a filmmaker that isn't capra might not have done that you know what i mean I do just want to say to do that. I think I think Martini is supposed to be Italian, he or is. at least yeah, he's like he's based definitely. on. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I don't know if we can talk about race necessarily, but well, well that's not what I meant. I meant like immigrants or like outsiders. No, that's yeah, yeah. And that, we talk about all of the, especially especially post World War II. Yeah, and it is it is important in this conversation to point out that Frank Capra was Italian American. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. oh, I actually did not know that. Yeah, he was probably drawing on his own experience and just... I mean, I doubt he put too much thought in Martini because he's a small part of the movie, but you know. Well, the reason I say that, though, I don't know. I will say uh, the guy who, Nick, looked like Oscar Isaac to me and it was very distracting. He Uh, did! (laughs) (laughs) It's a Wonderful Life remake. (laughs) 
Well, there are a lot of there. The adaptations and upper media part on Wiki is very interesting for this movie. Uh, even though it does not list Shrek 4, I don't believe, even though it should. Because Shrek 4 just remakes this. Darn. Uh, yeah, I know. What a, what a shame. Nathan Lane played Clarence in a remake? What? <laughs> well, speaking uh, of, I mean, the Muppets, they did it as well. They did well, uh, a very merry Muppet <laughs> Christmas movie. I just remember the memes about that, about uh, Kermit and uh, the Twin Towers. And so I can never watch that movie because of it. Wait, who, what Muppet was Clarence? Or was Clarence the human? I think Clarence was a human. Oh, Clarence was a human, wasn't be- it? Oh, I, I was going to say, he would have to be Fozzie, right? No, I think oh. it was Whoopi Goldberg. Because it's like someone's trying to close the Muppet feeder. And Kermit's like, well, if I just... I don't think he says he'll kill himself. Because that's a little dark. That would be so funny. Fozzie oh, would be the uncle. No, uh, it's David Arquette is, is Clarence. <laughs> that's really funny casting, actually. Wait, so I we, wish we could do a fantasy casting of the Muppets. <laughs> it's a Wonderful Life, but it exists. Wait, I want to see... Oh, I'm sorry, Whoopi Goldberg is God. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, wait, I want to see. So wait, d- does Kermit attempt suicide? I'm sorry. No I'm way. <laughs> Although this was rated PG, so. Drama. Uh, anyway, it's not. I remember seeing it. And it wasn't that great. <laughs> It was a 2000s Muppet project. It probably wasn't that great. Oh my gosh. Um, I do want to talk about while we're on while we're talking about, you know, George Bailey. Um Matthew Lillard was in this. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to spoil what I'm giving the award to, but I do need to talk about Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> because I mean, the I he's Go ahead. I already talked about his <laughs> breakdown being like phenomenal acting. I just, <laughs> I'm just thinking about because I didn't know this until like yesterday. I am thinking about Cary Grant in the role, and like, like Cary Grant is an amazing actor. I do like Cary Grant, but like Jimmy Stewart in this role, I think is so perfect because he's such a. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen other things of Jimmy Stewart. I personally really love. Um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah, I've seen it. Good stuff. Um, Sorry, he's on. so good at playing, like, and I think that's so interesting about, like, old Hollywood is, like, they have these actors that are, like, not, you know, I mean, at the time, they were considered, like, handsome but attractive, but, like, they have these actors that play these parts that are, like, not schmucks, but, like, everyman types. Like, that was kind of the archetype for actors back then was, like, the everyman. And I feel like Cary Grant, when I think of him, I think of, like, very suave and, like, very, you know, The Bachelor, like, the the, the George Clooney type. Yeah, I was going to say, I can make the comparison. I've always thought Clooney is, like, the modern Cary Grant and yeah. Tom Hanks is the modern Jimmy Stewart. That yeah. is always, yeah. How and I, I just feel like, obviously, you know, obviously, we can't imagine, you know, George Bailey being played by anybody else. But I feel like just... Jimmy Stewart is just, he's such a good actor. Like, he's just so good. And it's just like, and it's not just this. Obviously, like, it's like everything that he did was very good. And it just, like, his range in the movie from being goofy to being a dad to being depressed to being drunk, like, he does it all. And he does it so well. And it's just like this very nuanced, um, you know, performance, especially for the time. 
and he just he just kills it. He's able to age up his character really well because you get him you get him when he like starting when he's in his twenties, um, or I guess even younger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's about to head off into college, and then it ends. You know, he's he's older, but like he de- he has very subtle ways of showing how the the baggage of time has weighed on him. And not not to change subject because I agree. Um, but one thing that really stuck out to me on this watch was not in this. Of course, Jimmy Stewart did, but how Capra lets moments linger and just lets the camera stay there with them, like as they realize something. Mm-hmm. Particularly the one I I can't remember the exact moment in the scene, but when they're walking home from the uh, the prom or whatever dance it is, you know, there's just a lot of moments where it's silent and they just kind of look at each other, or like the camera just stays on them, uh, and it's just great because also because Donna Reed is also really great in this too, because uh, they both actually <laughs> compared to pretty much literally any performance we watched on this podcast, they both actually act in the silence. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So well, and I think that's a good lead-in to one of my favorite scenes of the entire movie. Um, and that is so uh well, I was gonna explain the plot, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Um yeah. <laughs> but um, so the big scene where Mary and George, you know, get together and she's like talking on the phone with her other suitor, um, who did plastics before before the graduate even did. And um it's just this, like, they don't, they don't talk to each other. It's just this guy talking at them. But there's so much that goes on in the scene. And, like, this scene, like I said, like, the last time I watched it was probably when I was a teenager. And, like, it's stuck with me, you know? It's, like, I would say that it's, it's very close to, like, towing the line in terms of, like, what is appropriate. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, yeah. And they did actually have to cut some stuff because uh it was a they did one take with it and jimmy stewart was really nervous and they ended up being so passionate with it that they had to scale it back a bit yeah no i totally i kind of kind of that feeling when i was watching it this time i was getting like okay but then it was like what i think is brilliant about the scene also is like how it just immediately cuts off when it does like Mm -hmm. That is really what makes that scene for me because it's kind of like, oh, this is cute. Uh, and it's another reason I think it's what it's because it's Jimmy Stewart. Like, you know, like you're like, oh, Jimmy Stewart never heard anything, you know? So, yeah. Uh, and then, just, then, you know, as soon as like stroke, it's like, what? So, yeah, it's, it's a good scene. I agree. Um, I got to say one thing because I was looking at this just now is that I think I might know why this would have bombed. And that's because I don't think it's a smart to release a Christmas movie five days before Christmas. Mm. <laughs> Probably not. Because uh, I don't know if you guys noticed recent. Well, obviously not recently, recently because of the pandemic. But in the 2010s or so, or t- honestly, our whole life, I'd say most Christmas movies come out in November. Or like either yeah. right before Thanksgiving or even the beginning. I remember right, the Benedict Cumberbatch Grinch movie opened. That's like the most recent big Christmas movie I can remember. <laughs> is I think it opened like the first week of November. Yeah, most Christmas movies are in streaming now. It's really weird. Yeah, it's a shame because I Jingle Jangle, I recommend. Well, <laughs> I watched re- I watched Black Christmas remake opening oh. night, and it was like the middle of November. So I feel like horror movie 
horror Christmas movies should come out at Christmas, though, personally. Well, <laughs> I will say there are, like, Netflix Christmas movies. They come out, like, on Christmas. Like, they, they spread those out. Christmas yeah, Prince is a, is a holiday tradition. I watched The Princess Switch on my flight. Uh. <laughs> I watched I, I watched Castle for Christmas. Highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> Can we uh can y'all help me help me out with something? Are the kids, specifically the kid playing George, are they good in this? Or have I just seen this movie so many times I can't imagine I can't like critique them? They're good. I yeah, good. I, I, they're just kind of I don't wanna okay, I'm not gonna say they're good, but I don't think they're bad. I think, I think they just they're kind good. of are, you know? Especially the kid playing George, I think is very good. I think I think the kids playing George's kids are really good. Because even if they are a little like cheesy at points, that's okay. Because that's the tone of the movie, you know. The youngest what? one is so good when he's yeah. like, Zuzu. "Excuse me." Oh, I oh, like not even Zuzu, I like the girl. Yeah. I like Zuzu a lot uh, because of how she's just like, "I don't want to that. I just want to look at my flower." And the like piano. that is such a kid thing, yeah. And the how she playing the kid playing the piano in the scene, and it's just droning on and on in the background is so effective because on one hand like i took piano lessons i've been there i i that was me with many piano songs but the other hand i'm like this is the perfect soundtrack to a man going crazy i feel yeah. like that scene i mean we've talked about the scene a little bit but i really like that part not like the part i find it very relatable when he yells at all of his kids and then he's like what did you need and his kid, like the son, is like, "Never mind, Dad." Yeah, because <laughs> that's also, such a relatable wait, thing. My favorite thing I noticed was when the kid asked mom how do you spell Frankenstein, and mom spells it wrong. No, she's no Frankenstein. Oh, it's because it's Christmas. Why would well, he... I didn't understand? I she was doing her homework. <laughs> also, the Santa masks that the kids have in that it's scene terrifying. are super creepy. <laughs> <It's> terrifying. <laughs> Uh, no, it's like, uh, what was I going to say? I think we, I, we, again, we talked about this already. I think the breakdown that scene is brilliant because of how it ebbs and flows. It's not mm-hmm. just like to compare it to a different Christmas movie. That's very different, but like Clark Griswold's meltdown and Christmas vacation is just like all amped up the whole thing. This is very much a, I'm starting to break down, but I have to put on a brave face to my kids, mm-hmm. but I still am just like, this is what? Like, my kids have sick. What? Like, you know, like it is very much a dynamic thing. It's mm-hmm. not. And that's what makes it feel so real. And what makes it really believable that he would just go to the bar. Uh, and actually, this is a side note, uh, but I made this comment to my brother, too, which I think when he asked, like, why is this set at Christmas? I'm like, I think setting at Christmas allows for like some an element of the dystopia to actually ring better, which is that like he goes to the bar in the dystopia world. On Christmas Eve, and it's packed, which yeah. is like how it yeah. should never be on Christmas Eve. Or like he, uh, the, the library is open till 10 p.m. or whatever on Christmas Eve, <laughs> stuff like that. Like that is a dystopia. <laughs> or all the clubs being open, like yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, like, um, I think what's so interesting about him going to the bar right after his meltdown with his kids is that he doesn't have any peers. And I think that just adds to the sacrifice he's making. I mean, he has Bert and Ernie, I guess. I guess they're the closest thing. But all of his friends have left. His brothers left. He's he's just got Mary. 
Like he doesn't have anyone else to like relate to. Yeah. He has married an Uncle Billy and he screamed at Uncle Billy yeah. earlier. That's the one part of the movie that doesn't really get a resolution, but I don't care. Because like oh, I think it at- does. Okay, well, let me rephrase. I feel like if this was made today, when he comes back, it'd be like one of the first people he'd see and be like, I'm so sorry, Uncle Billy. But like I'm like my, my point is more like I don't think it needs the resolution I'm asking for. Because pretty much as soon as he like screams at him, he has his own like obvious like walking home meltdown and then putting on a brave face to face his kids. So you can see it affects him and he's just taking it out of him just like he takes it out on all his kids later. Like, you know, well, I think that the resolution for me comes from when Potter is like, you made this mistake. And he's like, yep, just me. I feel like that's enough of a resolution. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. We should talk about Mr. Potter a little bit. We should. I was about to say that. Um, Quick side tangent. Uh, Back pre-pandemic, me and my sister went to uh, Dolly World, the greatest spot in Tennessee. Um, uh, And it was right after Christmas. So they still had all their Christmas stuff going on. So they had a It's a Wonderful Life play. So after, you know, a day of walking around the park, we decided to sit in there just so uh, we could, you know, sit down for a little bit. The guy playing Mr. Potter was so funny because he was he was tiny he was like a very tiny man and and like very young too and he tried he certainly tried but he did not sell it (laughs) well i was actually going off of that actually to go back no no because i actually can't one thing i noticed about i don't think it is the last scene it's when he's being offered basically the deal with the devil whatever you want to call it is this movie actually has the blocking in it and knowing how pirate power dynamics work is way like more advanced than anything else I've seen at this time. Uh, and in particular, I mean, of course that, you know, Mr. Potter's always sitting down cause he's in his wheelchair, but then of course, in his office, he has it. So whoever's sitting across from him is beneath him. And I think that's just like, it's not like, it's not like, I don't want to be like this is revolutionary, but it's also like, I don't think I've seen this in anything else around this time to think about this in the framing of the set and like how you would block it, that you would just have the power dynamics so evident. Uh, and that's yeah. something I see all the time now, like on um, not that you guys watch it, but in the finale of succession, they have a whole sequence that's incredibly built on like which characters are standing, which are sitting. So I mean, my point is like, you see this all the time now, but like in the forties, no, I'm no, <laughs> not to the level that's here. Uh, and there's stuff like that later on, too, I feel like in the breakdown, too, when he's sitting in the chair and people are standing around him, too. It's mm-hmm. just, it's smart blocking. What can I Lionel say? Ba- yeah, Lionel Barrymore, is, uh, everyone in this, I think, is playing their role perfectly. There's not a single person in this who I can, I can speak bad about. But I really do think Lionel Barrymore is doing an amazing job. Having, not having a lot of opportunities to physically act out everything comes through with his voice and his facial expressions. And he just never lets the character have even a moment of remorse, of self-doubt, of like sympathy. And I think that- Yeah, it's a great performance. And like, it's melodramatic, but I don't mean that in a bad way. Because like, there's no person on earth as vile as Potter is. But there (laughs) there are people whose actions- lead to consequences just as bad as Potter's. 
And I feel like that's why you don't need to hold back on a person like this. Because while you may not have a person who never has a shred of humanity in real life, you do have people who who act in very similar ways and whose outcomes are the exact same. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it feels like in a sense to me, compared to every other Christmas movie you've seen, this is like one of the, I can't think of another totally irredeemable villain in a Christmas movie. You know what I mean? Like a classic one. Uh, not something because usually, you know, the mean one is like the Grinch or Scrooge. Like they're the one getting redeemed. But in this, it's like, no, there are people in the world who are terrible and won't have their heart melted by Christmas. And that's just a fact of life. And that's another reason I think this resonates so hard is that there is like a clear cut, like villain that is in a sense, like, I don't want to be like, it's society, but society does always have these rich people who don't give a shit about anyone else, you know? Well, he's an archetype. He's an archetype that every single robber baron can be poured into. Yeah. And that's, I, that's like, kind of goes back to that thing I said earlier where he's like, I said, Bailey's talking about how it's impossible to afford a house. Like, it just feels, uh, it just feels like, you know, it just feels uh, very relevant today still. I mean, I guess going off of that, um, I think that he's kind of, I, I think it's an interesting idea too, because like, even though he is so you know closely linked to George's life, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like if this was a modern movie, we would expect the moment where like George is like, let's call Mr. Potter over and invite her for Christmas. <laughs> and I feel like the movie does a good job of not of like, despite the fact that everybody that George kind of interacts with, he tries to make their life better. Um, the movie never expects George to do that for him. And we never expect George to do that for him. And I think that that's kind of, why sometimes being a caricature can be a good thing because mm-hmm. you know there's never i mean it's not like mr potter's like i used to love christmas but then my son died like it's just like you know he's just there <laughs> he just is in the town and everybody hates him <laughs> it's a uh, miserable old man <laughs> i also feel like the ending like as you just said it could be like let's invite him over but i think the ending just implicitly like we don't need to see Mr. Potter at the end other than George going like, hey, and then like Mr. Potter going, like, you sucker. Like, that's all we need because the thing is, is like implicitly, since everyone else in the town is at George's place, that means he's spending Christmas alone. Right. You know, mm-hmm. like that's all we need to know. And like, it's what makes George the richest man in town is that he has, uh, the, the, I can't even, I, if I said out loud the, the letter, I'd probably start crying right now. The letter that he gets from Clarence. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of my favorite moments in the end is when the bank examiner walks up and puts some money in the basket. That, oh, it's such a good part. See, for We're me, it was, cry it was, talking for about me, the it was the, it was the, is the arrest for it. Cause the guy looks so happy to do it. That yeah. to me was like, yeah. that was good. <laughs> what I like about the bank examiner is he has no idea who this guy is and he just wants to get home. But like he sees the impact that he has on his community and like he can't deny that this is a good man. And I kind of want to go back 
uh, to the Muppet Christmas Carol, in a sense. Which is, no, no, this will make sense, trust me. Uh, in that, okay, so, and this is at the end of every Christmas Carol movie, right? Is Scrooge comes back and he's like overjoyed to be alive. I was going to say the same thing. The Merry Christmas thing, yes. But, well, the difference is, though, in Scrooge, with Scrooge, it's always like, he's like, oh, thank God I have a second chance. But in this, it's just like the joy of existing and being alive. And it just feels so much. That's that's why, like, you can watch so many Christmas Carol movies and, like, I'm never going to cry. Well, maybe, maybe there's one out there I haven't seen. I'm never going to cry at Scrooge, like, like running through the town. I'm going to cry more at him being like, like, here's Tiny Tim and we're all spending great time together because Tiny Tim deserves that. But this is just like George's. He's like, yes, I hit a tree. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just... my, my mouth's bleeding, Bert. My mouth's bleeding. <laughs> And I, what? It's just so powerful to see him overjoyed for once to be in Bedford Falls and to be in existence. <laughs> and uh, going on the comparison to Christmas Carol, um, I love Christmas Carol. It's one of my favorite stories. I love every yeah. not I don't love every version, but I love most versions. Let's <laughs> go say there's plenty of bad versions of Christmas <laughs> yeah. Carol I've seen. <laughs> but um but Dickens wrote that. At a time, and it was, I won't, I don't want to say it's political, but he had a message to it. And he had an audience he was trying to attract. But that audience was a wealthier audience. He was trying to show people that they were being like Scrooge. In the modern day, though, with a more, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word, but a, film is a medium that can appeal to people of a not lower class but lower middle you know it doesn't have to be high class yeah right so like it's not an expensive art form it costs a nickel to go see at this time so scrooge is scrooge is a cool character to see and it's cool to see that transformation but you can't relate to him if you're not rich um or you can't you know there's a barrier there but everyone can relate to george because you know he, he is just such a regular guy the only thing that makes him exceptional is that he chooses to do good things. Yeah. He's like the, he's like, it's like if a Christmas Carol was made, but it was Bob Cratchit instead. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's also one of the reasons this is just like, like seasonal depression is a thing, right? Like every Christmas I get sad, like for a variety of time, just because like, it's really easy to feel like alone on. I don't want to get too much into like seasonal depression, but my point is, is like George is feeling sad on Christmas is natural. If you're normal, like to be very honest. So that to me, it makes it the fact that it, it just like he is inherently relatable, not necessarily only because of his class, but because of like the idea that everything is falling apart on Christmas is Kind of like what Shane, you said with your shame, everything always falls apart on Christmas, right? Like, and for it to happen in such a huge way here to him is, I don't know, it just feels inherently relatable to everyone on such a basic level, whether you're rich or poor, uh, in the sense that Scrooge, like, yeah, we all want to be like, or the Grinch, right? Like, we all want to be like grumpy or angry. Uh, and that's honestly like, to me, the Grinch makes me cry every time too. Like to be honest, unlike the Christmas Carol, the Grinch, other than the Jim Carrey one, because it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> but even the Benedict Cumberbatch one makes me cry, right? Like, 
it is a story that is like this, but obviously much more fantastical, where the redemption at the end comes from the idea of going into a community um, and being welcomed into a community in a sense that in The Grinch, it feels more like wish fulfillment in a sense, but here it just feels very natural and based in the idea that you don't really know the people who care about you until they show it. And that kind of adds power to it. I don't know if I'm making sense right now. Well, I, think <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's like a universal feeling. I think that it's a universal adult feeling. Yes. I think that's that, a good point, yeah. because obviously kids, you know, they know, Oh, you know, my mom and my dad love me. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully kids feel that way. Um, and I think obviously as you, for me, it's like, I feel like every single year, my Christmas gets worse. <laughs> Like, as I grow older, it becomes worse. But it's like, you think back to when you were a kid, and it's like, Christmas was like the best thing in the world. Um, And I think that that's kind of what makes these, you know, for kids, if they watch The Grinch, if they watch this movie, you know, they still can be like, oh, it's Christmas, like, there's snow. Um, You know, and like, they see love, obviously. But I think as an adult, it really hits deeper just because it's very relatable to feel I mean, it's it's relatable yeah. to feel lonely even when you're surrounded by people, especially on yeah, Christmas. no, a hundred percent. Um, I agree. Uh, I've had the opinion for a while. I think since like middle of college, where it's like, you know, I think Christmas is just like, I don't want to be like Christmas is terrible because Christmas isn't terrible, but I don't think it will feel magical to me again until I have my own kids, and that is just kind of like a fact that I exist with. Which is kind of also why, why I like my job, to be very honest. It's kind of like why I like working with kids, because I get to actually enjoy Christmas on a level. And, and to me, that's kind of the power of, it's what's necessary for Christmas. Because every society, as far as I know, have said, they have some type of winter festival or ritual or holiday, because it's so it's such an easy time to um to give up because it's it's dark it's cold you know but even within that like you can be lonely and you can you can still be depressed and things can still go wrong and oftentimes things will go wrong that are unique to the holiday um and so i think that's that's part of why like as an adult i can relate to that a lot more um yeah. And like you said, there is a certain magic that can only kind of be achieved when children are around because they they have a certain amount of innocence. But even then, I don't want to make it sound like I don't love Christmas because I do. <laughs> it's just, you know, I, I can I can relate to George more now. Yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting that you guys. Well, I guess I could have watched as a kid, but to me, I can't really imagine getting much at all out of this as a kid. Really? I, I don't know. I. It might have been one of those things where I didn't watch a ton of movies as a kid, so like when I did, it was automatically special. But I remember really, like, really liking, um, the humor in the movie, like when the swimming pool opens and they fall in, um, every like Clarence just being a funny little guy, and then by the time you get to the point where everything goes dark, I'm just like, the movie has earned kid me's attention well so for me um i knew the story of a christmas carol i mean ever since i was a little kid um like i so i i would 
do the show, like a Christmas Carol at a local theater every single year until I was like a teenager. And then I, now I do like advertising for it. So I've seen it like basically every single year. So when I was a kid and along with the Grinch and along with, you know, Scrooged and, you know, all those types of movies, um, I think just the idea, you know, maybe not the whole like emotional connection to it, but they're definitely, I think kids can definitely resonate with that idea that like, you know, Christmas is about the ones you love. Um, and I think as a kid, I feel like that's kind of, I understood it just because I understood like the Grinch and Scrooge and like those type of characters. I guess the difference to me is just the like, for obviously the Grinch is a cart, like the Grinch is always going to be a cartoon. Sorry, Jim Carrey. Uh, but moreover, like for a Christmas Carol, I think most people are introduced to that first with the Mickey Mouse version. You know, so to me, it's like it is like or the Muppet version. What am I wrong? My dad dropped me in hard with the George C. Scott version. I don't know if I've ever seen the George C. Scott version. Uh, it probably is as good as I think it is. <laughs> well, spoiler alert. I know for a fact at some point we will cover a version of a Christmas Carol on this podcast. I, I don't know when. Well, obviously it will be at a Christmas, but I don't know if it will be next Christmas or the Christmas after. Uh, it is one of the two Christmas movies that qualify for this besides It's Wonderful Life. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I guess we could, we're going to talk about Christmas Carol again at some point here. <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I don't, I forgot my point. Uh, but I don't know. Like, it's just in a way. It's one of those weird things that's kind of like, to me, it goes back to like, you know, how Star Wars is the first Star Wars movie was such a hit or like this being such like the defining Christmas classic when because whenever you watch it, I feel like this is true. You forget like how little of it is actually about Christmas or rather how short the dystopia part is. That is what everyone talks about with it. Uh, And even the dystopia stuff that is there is just so actually dark. That, and I think darkness fits with the holidays for all the reasons we mentioned before, uh, and also honestly, because Caleb mentioned him, Shane Black's career is entirely to thank for Christmas having this dark side to it. Uh, what, Sarah? Sarah's giving me a look. No, I just I misinterpreted what you I you were no I I mis, I thought you meant it was Shane Black that made it a trend, and I was like. Absolutely. No, no, no. I'm saying his, his career is only thanks to that being a trend. Although he's a, I don't want to get in shape black. He's, there's a lot of stuff there that is completely unrelated to what we're talking about. Um, but I, I just think it's interesting that this is a classic. Uh, and I think it totally deserves it's a classic. I think it's interesting. This is the type of movie that I feel like only gets made because Frank Capra really believed in it and Jimmy Stewart really believed in it. And at the time, people, you know, didn't really respond to it. And it's yeah. a testament to, like, how well-made it is that it really does stand the test of time so well. That it it is, I think, both of theirs defining. I know there might be more of an argument for Stewart that Jimmy Stewart has a more defining work than this. But I definitely mean this is Capra's defining work, despite, you know, obviously having so many classics under his name besides it. We haven't talked about uh, Clarence much. Uh, and obviously, like you were pointing out, Danny, the dystopian stuff doesn't come in for a while. So he's not a huge presence. It's a while before you see him. Um, 
But do we want to talk about him at all? I mean, we can. <laughs> I think, like, I think to me, I'd be. He's 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 good. He's interesting. But to me, I like was looking at the cast. I'm like, I could talk about Clarence, or I could talk about Uncle Billy, and I chose to talk about neither of them. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I think that there, even among the supporting cast, there are more interesting aspects than Clarence. Even though Clarence is obviously so important to the movie, like being what it is. Also, I will say at the music box was a little annoyed at the bells that kept ringing every time he appeared on screen because people brought their bells and. Okay, that's obnoxious. Yeah. Well, like at the end, it's it was okay because he's like, every time a bell the rings, angel gets his wings. <laughs> yeah, they kept whining his wings too early. It was like, what well, if you just got him and he just flew away? And that's the end. He's like, all right. <laughs> I can't wait for our remake of this where we see Clarence get his CGI <laughs> the wings. The weirdest reaction the crowd gave me was laughing at Clarence and saying, oh, she's an old maid. Everyone laughing at that. I'm like, all right, come on, audience. I, I get that just because it's like, He's seen the grave of his brother. And then it's like, what happened to my wife? But she's still alive. She just hasn't married anyone. Like, no, she's a librarian. Yeah. No. I mean, even. <laughs> Which is unrealistic also because Mary's a catch. What were you going to say, sir? I have a Well, I was going to say, even when I was younger, I was like, well, you know what? I actually, I, I remembered also that I watched parts of this movie when I was in religious ed, which I think is kind of weird because while I do think this movie has like religious undertones, I wouldn't consider it a religious movie, but we watched parts of it in religious ed. We watched like, we watched like the, you know, the, you know, from the middle onwards. We didn't watch his like yeah. childhood and stuff. Um, and yeah, he wouldn't be allowed to watch their meet cute. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but because we were talking about angels and we we're talking about like guardian angels and stuff like that. So, um, but, oh, I just remember like even my like, even like my religious ed teacher. And they were just like volunteers, like parents. She was like, she was trying to explain like what an old maid was. And it was just like, even when I was a kid, I was like, it doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> <laughs> and she's not old. No. She's not an old maid. She's just a maid. <laughs> oh, but what I will say at that moment, I, this is what I was going to say, is the sound design of this movie. And I had to be like, you have to see it in a theater to fully embrace the sound design. But... That scream almost made me jump, followed by the gunshots. They are mixed in incredibly well. In the gunshots are so funny. <laughs> he fires into a crowd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the scene that had my brother laughing, and go- he literally was like, this movie's really like, that's one of the weirdest scenes I've ever seen. He said that to me. And it's when uh, Vi stops him in the street and he's like let's go somewhere he's like yeah let's go to the woods that'd be really fun and then she's like what and then it just cuts and turns around <laughs> and the entire town is laughing at him and i was like that's one of the weirdest things i've ever seen i was like yeah it's a it's a weird moment it's a, i'll allow it but but caleb i want to go back to you because i saw your face light up when sarah met said religious film and i want i want you to say what you were definitely going to say in there because <laughs> i so i i would not call this a religious film i think growing up in you know in good old southern baptist church there's definitely a lot of people who treat this like it's the 67th book of the bible but <laughs> it's 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 not religion it's definitely religion adjacent you have people praying you have angels and stuff but what it does is it creates this kind of utopian version of religion 
where it's like, yes, religion is about generosity. It is about helping people. There are guardian angels and all this stuff. And it just, it's one of these things where as a kid, I watched it and like, I saw religion and I saw like the Christianity that was being grown up and reflected in it. Now growing up being a much more cynical Christian, I see it's like, oh, this is what we should be doing. Why aren't we? Well, Mr. Potter can be <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, I, just, I think that brings up an interesting point is like, so I'm not a religious person. Obviously, I grew up, you know. Dang, we're talking taught, about like seasonal breakdowns and religion, religion on this podcast. No, no, no. I promise you it has. So I no, personally like, I watch a lot of Hallmark movies around this time of year. They don't talk about God at all. They don't talk about Jesus. And I think that it's very, like, for me, I honestly really like Christmas movies that don't talk about the birth of Christ at all. Because not, you know, not because I'm like, you know, offended or whatever. I just, I really, I think that it puts a, a much larger emphasis on how you're supposed to be acting and how you're supposed to be, you know, you're, it's, you're supposed to be, you know, loving and kind to everybody. And I think that, um, I, I just like that there isn't this like, obviously there are movies about the birth of Christ. Go find them if you want to watch them. But for me, like, I think that it sort of transcends. There's one of Oscar Isaac. Sorry, go on. <laughs> I think I've never seen it, but I know there's one of Oscar Isaac. <laughs> I think it like transcends, you know, religion. And I think that it can it can be religious, like I said, but it it doesn't have to be. I think now would be a good well, time to admit. Oh, sorry. Were you going to say something, Caleb? You probably have a better yeah. tonight. The weird thing about religion and Christianity is that. <laughs> We're really getting into Zagon. <laughs> is that Christians feel the need as they uphold the status quo to make Christianity or everything involving Christianity and especially Christmas a moral issue. But the narrative of Christmas is not one that is moral unless you want to dig into like the generosity of the shepherds and the wise men, which you can, but I don't think that's where most people draw into it. It's like, this is not a story about moral actions. This is a story about a displaced family having to find shelter and the hope that what they accomplish brings. And so it's just, it's weird to me how this movie being such a movie focused on morality is co-opted. And I I think maybe the reason Christians are so drawn to it, even though it doesn't explicitly talk about the birth of Christ, is it gives them an inroad inroad for tying Christmas to morality. And I think, well, this is kind of related, but to mention the one Christmas classic we haven't mentioned on this podcast yet, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, I think there's a good point to be made there where like, because Sarah, you're like, I don't like when they mention Jesus. No, I didn't say I didn't like it. I said I like it when they don't. There's a difference. I think baby Jesus is a punk. <laughs> well, the boss baby too mentioned baby Jesus. Might I just point that out? The original um, boss baby. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> I was going to be like, no, I said the same quote. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think it's interesting always look at the end of charlie brown right where linus goes like this is the real meaning of christmas and then he just says i think it's like a passage from luke and charlie brown goes out and does his thing and like people always, i remember growing up my parents were like that's the best part of the special but i'm like 
You're just telling me that because you want me to... Well, that sounds like antagonistic, but you know what I mean. Like, the, the part of that that matters isn't necessarily that Charlie Brown hears it. It's that everyone else hears it. You know? Because mm-hmm. uh, Charlie Brown's going to be sad at Christmas no matter what. Uh, but what matters is his friends realizing they need to go and be with him from hearing the passage. I don't know if that makes sense. I haven't watched Charlie Brown in like a couple years. Uh, but... No, but I will say that this has nothing to do with It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> That's like the only time in the Charlie Brown specials where community really comes around Charlie Brown that I can remember. Because well, uh, Charlie Brown isn't the focus of the of the Halloween one or the Easter one. Um as much. I don't think he's the focus of the Thanksgiving one. But this is the one time when the kids come I come to I him. haven't seen it since theaters, but I remember in the movie they do all come together. And I remember really just crying at that because I was like, Charlie Brown is getting a happy ending. And honestly, I can't because you know, some people are like purists and they're like, he can't have a happy ending. But I'm like, no, he's a kid. He can have this. You we can give him this ending for this movie and it will be okay. Like he will be fine. Uh, I don't know. That movie came out what 2015. Yeah, the world, world hasn't exactly improved since Charlie Brown got a happy ending. Danny, <laughs> it didn't immediately fall apart though. After it took a year. <laughs> um, the other thing I was gonna say to jump back to a point was made like ten minutes ago is is this a religious a, a Christian movie or a religious movie? And I would say it is as much. A Christian slash religion. I don't remember what the point was being made. Like, you know what I mean? Christian or religion. I don't remember what word choice we used. I'd say it's as much as, like, The Exorcist or The Conjuring. Uh, even though, like, they are obviously different genres. I think they both use Christianity in a similar way. You know? That's all I wanted to say when you guys were talking about that. I mean, the guy who wrote The Exorcist was very Christian. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say was uh, there was one part of this movie that I laughed at that is completely unrelated to this movie, and it's not listed in the legacy part on Wikipedia, and that's when it says, Welcome to Pottersville, and my mind just flashed I, to okay. Michael Shannon. I was wondering if they were related. Suit. They have to be related. They aren't related. Right? They aren't related. I've seen the movie. They just call it Pottersville <laughs> try to like grab your click. There's no mention of It's a Wonderful Life in Pottersville. <laughs> the furry movie with Ron Perlman as a furry, who's dating Judy Greer as a furry. And I would say his very Michael not Shannon safe, is there. His very not safe for work tweet about it. If you didn't like his movie. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about I don't that. Know. I don't know what movie this is. Oh man, I watched I, I watched Pottersville for a certain professor of ours film crit class. Because I was expecting I'd be able to like write intertextuality about it. And I saw it. And I was like, no, there's nothing here. I, I think I have a letter. I think I put up my essay as a letterbox review, but I do not remember my point at all I made with it. Uh its tagline is it's a magical life. How but it's a it's, it's, it's a not- movie about uh Michael Shannon. Uh, discovers his wife cheating on him in, in a fursuit with Ron Perlman, who's also in a fursuit, obviously. Uh, and he somehow gets stuck in a fursuit at one point and runs like runs home in it. I think it's like he somehow like loses his clothes and the only thing he has is the fursuit. So he runs home and someone sees him and it becomes international attention that Sasquatch was found here around Christmas. So he keeps donning the Sasquatch suit to grab like attention for his friend's shop. 
<laughs> at Christmas. Well, all my good feelings <laughs> about It's a Wonderful Life of Fame. <laughs> Uh, it's 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 a it's an interesting movie solely for the fact that Michael Shannon is in it. That is really the only reason it's interesting. Because <laughs> it's like Michael Shannon trying to play a George Bailey type, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, back to the real Pottersville. Um, I don't know if I have anything more to say about Pottersville. I don't know if I have any like. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about this movie? We we went to a religion, our own instances of seasonal depression. Like you know, we we've we've covered a lot of ground here. Okay, so I'll take that as a no because no one's talking. I'm sorry, I was looking for his tweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you gonna read it? Are you gonna read the tweet? I'm not. It's not. A, I can't read it. It's not you can read it. And jo- Joe will bleep it. Don't worry. Joe Joe's bleeped me on my podcast. So you can read it here so Caleb knows what it is. I don't know Do if it. I should. Okay. Do it. As Do long it. as it's tell bleeped. Me off as long as it's bleeped. It will be bleeped. Do you want to tell me off my No, no, no. Say it and it will be bleeped. Do it. Yes, you are. All Do right. it. <clears throat> my company made a little movie out on Netflix now called Pottersville. One critic called it the worst movie ever made. It's him and irresponsible g- like him that turned a great art form into a cavalcade of men in spandex Pottersville, made with love Pottersville is hating Pottersville is what led to the superheroes taking over does Martin Scorsese think that Pottersville is cinema we'll have to ask him the next time he's on the podcast <laughs> but yeah um oh. Anyway, do we have anybody else we want to say about It's a Wonderful Life? My dad's favorite scene in this movie is the dance scene. That was my that. mom's favorite scene. The dance scene. scene's great. Um, I think we should go around and say our favorite scenes. My favorite is the bank run scene. I love how that scene is shot and handled and how some of the people buy into him. Some people don't. It's great scene. And obviously parallels the ending. I mean, I think my favorite scene is the ending. Like, is that a cheap answer to give? Like, I think pretty much the ending. It's good. Yeah, like, uh, you know what? If it's not the ending, it's the breakdown, which I've already said why on this podcast. You know, I don't need to get into it again. Um, I mean, I would say I, I also really like the bank scene. Um, but I, I, I would say the phone scene. I really, I really actually like the phone scene. The phone scene is good. We didn't really honestly talk about that chunk, like the phone scene up until like their honeymoon which includes the bank scene like that whole chunk i think is chef's kiss shall we um play our game for the last time of the year yeah all right sarah remind us what it was nominated for yeah it was nominated for best picture best director for frank capra best actor for jimmy stewart best editing for william hornbeck and best sound recording for John Albert. Now, first of all, uh, let me say that I think all five of these would be deserving wins. Uh, yes. Pretty easily. Like, granted, we haven't seen the best years of our life. It probably is really good. Let's be real. It probably is a very good movie. Um, or I, I don't know about the Jolson story, uh, but it's a musical, so it makes sense at one sound recording. Uh, but 
I also think I'll be very surprised if it isn't unanimous, even though I think there's an argument for Capra. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is my win. Easy. Easy. This is a phenomenal performance that really holds. I mean, you could say something about Capra's direction, but it's just like there are just microseconds of his performance that devastate. So it's Jimmy Stewart's got to win this for me. Um, I feel like I should give it best picture to make up for <laughs> Honestly, I wouldn't even want it. I, I, I was really thinking you were like slowly moving up to your night like to go like I third the motion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I but I'm not gonna give it best picture. Um I also and I wish it hadn't been nominated for editing so I could give it that in our next section because this is edited so yeah, well. Yeah, it really is. Like and it would not work. Like this would not work if it had bad editing, like the way the first half of the movie's told. But um, no, it has to be Stuart. Stuart's amazing in this. Um, might be the best performance of the 40s. It's definitely I feel up comfortable saying that. Yeah. Whew. Uh, Adonam. Um, cinematography. Easy. This is such a beautiful looking movie. Um, and, um, you know, he's not playing it with huge sets or anything like that, but he always is able to capture the scene really well. You mentioned the blocking earlier, Dan, yeah. um, and the camera is definitely involved with that. So, um, I'm going to go with adapted screenplay because, I mean, obviously, I think now that we now that we realize that there are you know shades of a Christmas Carol, but I think that it's they've become separate entities. You have you know the two, the four ghost narrative, and then you have the never been born narrative, and I think that this really set the standard for what it was. So. So here's the deal. I said last week or so, whenever we recorded last, that I already knew I was giving both my awards to. But I'm going to change it for two reasons. One is because Sarah took it. But two, it's more because I thought this was original screenplay. Uh, and me describing it as adapted is cool. And I do think it's definitely one of the most... Because as I've said, like this plot is done in like every sitcom. They made a Shrek movie about this. Like with the same plot. Of it. Um, so I think it's a very influential screenplay. I think it's a fantastic screenplay. But I want to give credit to someone else because I think it's cool. Because I think this movie is so good that if we do doubles, it's also kind of lame. You know what I mean? Like, there are so much to say about this movie. I'm going to give, uh, I think she'd be actress considering the time to uh, Donna Reed. Is that's it, right? Donna Reed. Yeah. Um, she matches Stuart for so much of this movie and I say for so much and not all of it just because she's not in all of it pretty much every scene she is with Stuart she completely sells it with him there are close-ups on her face that just linger on her reaction that are great we didn't talk about this scene but her face when she comes into the hunt he comes home from the honeymoon comes to the honeymoon and she just hopes she's he's happy with it is just so good and that whole that sequence is so good too even with Bird and Ernie being like, wow, wow, we will it. Actually, I might argue that that might be why the scene is good. It's because they're going, wow, wow, we want during it. But I think Donna Reed is phenomenal in this movie. Not as good as Jimmy Stewart, but who really is? So Donna Reed for Best Actress will be my nomination ad. So. All right. That is um, It's a Wonderful Life. And that is Christmas. Uh. But first, I gotta say what we'll talk about when we come back to it, which, if you guys remember, 
actually, I don't remember what when we did what ceremony we were on, but we have to return to the last ceremony we did because it was a two part episode. Now, uh, if you remember, Random Harvest. <laughs> quality How can I forget? Uh, yeah. It's the 15 Academy Awards, and it had seven nominations for no wins. There was another movie at the 15 Academy Awards with seven nominations of no wins. And it was directed by George Stevens, and it's called The Talk of the Town, which also has Ronald Coleman in it. We'll be covering The Talk of the Town when we return in the new year. Um, but yeah, but for now, enjoy your Christmas. And if you don't celebrate, enjoy your winter break that I assume you have because... Christmas is, I think, a federal holiday for some reason. Uh, for some reason. It's One Nation Under God. Come on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, now you start questioning okay. the ingrained uh, religiosity of our society. Um, but yeah, we're going to jump back to the 15 Academy Awards and wrap that up with uh, the talk of the town. Uh, shall we do our sign-off? Should we say goodbye? Should we wish everyone a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays? Anyway, I'm Danny Vincent. Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd at Blankness. Uh, you can also listen to my other podcast, Wise with Ty and Dan, where today we are also releasing a Christmas episode, which I haven't recorded yet, but I assume it's going to be two to three hours on Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, which, well, you know what? Uh, I'll, I'll keep it to myself because it might be a spoiler for Spider-Man No Way Home that I shouldn't say on this podcast. <laughs> so uh, I'll say it off mic later. But if you've seen it. Go listen to that podcast. It'll be really nice. And it will be what is Fender Hall is listening to me talk for four hours, right? Uh that's what Christmas is for. Uh but yeah. Guys, happy happy holidays. Um and I hope as we head into the new year that y'all uh have a good new year as well. Um you can find me at Kale from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. Um and from there you can find my litany of other podcasts, all new fifty-two. Hot Trash Unlimited, which also has an episode out today, also about uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. It will be under an hour, though. So if you do need to save a little bit of time and spend time with your family, listen to that one instead of why is. Why why is this for the people alone at home on Christmas? Hot Trash is for the people who are with family. (laughs) Um, And and finally, Star Wars Therapy, uh, our next episode um, will be out January 4th and will be about upcoming Star Wars projects. Um, and you can find me on Letterboxd, just my name, Sarah Knopf. I'm not doing anything exciting like a podcast, but you can check out. You're also out. not watching Spider-Man No Way Home. I am also not doing that. Um, <laughs> check out my, my list of Hallmark movies and whatnot that I've been watching, directed by women. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at SGK29, E-S-S-G-E-E-K-A-Y 29. Um, you can find us, the Snub Club, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Facebook is just the Snub Club. Uh, Twitter is Snub Club Pod, and Instagram is Snub Club Podcast. Um, have a good Christmas. Have a good holiday. We'll see you later. Yeah, we'll see you. And thanks to our editor. Oh, of course. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thank Merry Joe. Christmas. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we will... Uh, in case, well, we won't see you. So also have a happy new year and we'll see you in 2022. So bye.